Hello, this is A.R. Bernard, and welcome to my podcast. My objective, it's simple, to create a platform where you can be educated, informed, and inspired as you navigate the intersection of faith and culture. If you have no faith, maybe you'll find it here. So, thanks for tuning in. On behalf of my lovely wife, Karen Bernard, thank you, thank you, thank you. If she was here, that's how she would say it. That's what she would say. And she is tuning in. So come on, let's give her a round of applause and appreciation and love. And let the cameras and the audience right now. Now, you love my wife, you love me. I don't know who approved those photos. That's a meeting we'll have this week. But that last image of her in a bathrobe, um, for those of you who don't know, Pastor Karen's challenged with multiple sclerosis. And unfortunately, you know, it takes its toll on her from time to time, and she could have episodes and unscheduled. We don't know. We could plan things. And then those plans are interrupted suddenly. And um, she wanted to be here, of course, but she had an episode and family decided we're just going to take it to her. So we took over our home and what you saw us singing together, we were doing karaoke <laughs> the best we can. And uh, it was just a wonderful time and opportunity to just show her how much we love her. We've been in ministry together. This, this will make 45 years of ministry. And we have the scars and the bruises to show. Because ministry is not for the faint-hearted. Because you're dealing with people. All kinds of people. Wounded, broken human beings who are reaching out for God's love, his life, his light, to heal that brokenness. And I will tell you, uh, Fred couldn't have stated it any better than in that song that is a favorite song of Pastor Karen. She grew up in an abusive home situation, uh, verbal, physical, emotional, and it was tough for her to come around even as a Christian, to embrace God's value for her. And once she did, it made a difference in her life. How many know that the trauma that happens to you as a child can stay with you indelibly, leaving a mark for, you know, the rest of your life, major portions of your life? And um, so she fought through all of that. And she even gives me a better appreciation of the text that says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship. And there are many, many things you can get out of that passage, but one of the most important things for her who felt she didn't have anything to give to God. She realized in that text, the greatest gift that she could give is herself. Why? Because she now, like you and I, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
So when we offer ourselves, when we surrender our mind, our will, our emotions, and our bodies to God, don't you know that's the greatest gift that we could give to him? Because we're giving back the gift that he gave to us. He's the one who has set it apart, made us holy, sanctified us, given us value. Amen? And that is the greatest gift that we can return to God. So on her behalf, thank you, thank you, thank you, CCC, for celebrating her life. You bless her, you bless me. Amen? Amen. And I'm so glad to have a, friend of, a dear friend of mine for many, many years, Tom Harris and his lovely wife, Vicki. Come on, stand up, Tom and, and Vicki. I'm so glad to have you. We've known them for, God, over 25 years of ministry. And he keeps my Greek correct. He's Greek, so he keeps my Greek correct. But, um, you know, I, how many know that this is a journey? It's a journey. And we live life on levels. We arrive in stages. And each stage can take us into new relationships and friendships that are part of that growth and development. Of course, we're also so proud of Congressman Jeffries. Thank you. Thank you for what you do, who you are. We need models. We need models in life. Amen? Uh, so I'm ready to teach. Are you ready to learn? And I want to use this month and part of February to set the framework for our theme this year, which is revival. Revival, renewal, and all of life is about renewing. The, the Bible beautifully says that though our outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. How many are familiar with that passage? Though our outward man perish. And God never wanted the outward man to perish because the original vision for God is our immortality. It's when sin and death entered the world and human experience that we now had to experience the mortality of this human physical body. But originally, and even now, even in a broken, wounded uh, state, our body renews itself. If you get a cut in some way, what happens? Your body begins to heal itself and restore, right, with new cells to grow in that place. So the body was designed to live forever. But the power of sin and death came and changed that trajectory. And of course, Christ is going to change that with a new body. And how many look forward to that new body? I heard that calories do not affect that new body. So you can eat whatever you want, and it's okay. And to some of you, you'll be very, very happy about that. Praise the Lord. Amen? But our theme is renewal. And renewal is part of life. Inward renewal is constantly going on by the Holy Spirit because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. So there's this constant renewal that's taking place, even through your struggles, no matter what season you may be in spiritually in your growth and development. And renewal is part of life. We renew driver's license. Amen. You're supposed to renew it, folks. That's the law, okay? Yeah, we renew things. We renew our vows in, in, in marriage. Amen? I wondered, you know, if, if the marriage license expired in 25 years, how many would renew? <laughs> but
But renewal is part of life. And we see God renewing human society by his own intervention. So, let me framework, and then we're going to uh, lay some things, some foundations, because I want to give you a big perspective to understand. And the most important thing throughout all of this this year is, is three words, God at work. Say with me, God at work. Too often we talk about what the devil's doing. I want to know what God's doing. Amen? That's what I want to tune into. I'm aware of the work of evil and the forces of evil that are work, and I need to be aware of those things. How many know you need to be aware of those things? But that's not to be your focus of attention. The focus of your attention is to be about what God is doing. Renewal is the reawakening, and you've heard this before, and I just want to you know, get it really down inside of you, inculcate these things. Renewal is a reawakening of passion, creativity, passion, and fervor, towards purpose. It is a reawakening of creativity, passion, and fervor towards purpose. Don't ever detach that reawakening towards purpose. So revival and renewal, especially in church and your spiritual context, is not just to give you a week of feeling good. It is towards purpose. So when God revives you and renews you, it is towards what? Purpose. Purpose. And sometimes it takes a crisis in our lives to get us focused on purpose. But for us, crisis is not a bad thing. Crisis is a good thing because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his what? Purpose. So the reawakening of creativity passion, fervor towards some purpose in your life and in society because of your gift, talent, and ability. How many know that God gave you a gift, talent, and ability not just for you, but it's for you to make a difference in the world in which you live? Aristotle put it this way. He said, at the intersection where your gift, talents, and abilities meet a human need, that's when you discover purpose. So purpose is not discovered by doing nothing. Purpose is discovered when you are at work using your gifts, using your talents, using your abilities, applying yourself. Therein you discover purpose. And let me just say this to you. You don't determine purpose. Purpose has already been determined by God. And based upon the purpose that he determined for your life, he gifted you for that purpose. Because what God's gifted you to do, he's purposed you to do. What God's purposed you to do, he's gifted you to do. So your responsibility is not to try to figure out the purpose side of things. It's to figure out the gifts, talents, and abilities. And how you have the responsibility, although they're a gift, you have the responsibility to build your, your skill in the use of those gifts, talents, and abilities. So just because God gave you a voice to sing doesn't mean you sit there and just sing. No. You have a responsibility to develop that skill. God could have given you a gift of communication. You have a responsibility to develop that gift of communication. So whatever the gift is, whatever the talent is, it's an investment that God made toward a purpose. 
And remember, the common theme throughout Scripture is not you're going to hell. It's human flourishing. Human flourishing. That's the objective of God. That's the objective of redemption. So when we think about revival or renewal, and revival tends to be the church term. Renewal is the actual way we should think about it. When we think about renewal, renewal essentially is change. It's about change. It's about change. Now, you've heard me say it again and again. Change is the only what? Constant in life. We're always going through changes. Some good, some bad. Some challenging, some easier. But we're always going through changes. Change is the only constant in life. And here's the important thing. Either you will lead change or change will lead you. I'm going to say it again. Either you will lead change or change is going to lead you. Because even if you sit still and do nothing, you're changing. Unfortunately, it's a change towards deterioration. It's a decrease instead of increase. So it's a reawakening of creativity, passion, fervor, excitement, innovation. It's a reawakening and stirring of those things toward purpose. It's a stirring up of the gift that's inside of you. It's a stirring up of the gift that's inside of you. And purpose is not static. Purpose is dynamic. So it's not that one thing that you're going to do in life and you were created for. No, because suppose you do it at age 30. You have no purpose to continue living. And I'm careful with those words. No, purpose is dynamic. Your gift, talents, and abilities, your growth and movement and development is always opening new doors and opportunities to apply your gift, talents, and abilities and stir purpose. Because you're growing. You're maturing. So purpose takes place on several levels. Number one, it takes place on a personal level. Personal renewal. And personal renewal is where God digs deep inside of you. It's internal. It's a process of purification by way of crisis. Jesus said, every branch in me that bears fruit, I will what? Prune it. So personal renewal gets into your business, personal business, your core values. Your sense of identity. Your sense of belonging and acceptance and all of those things that make you who you are. It gets into the things that Fred Hammond was talking about that you hide in the back. You don't want people to see. How many have some things like that? Those of you who didn't raise your hand, you've got a lot of them. That's why you didn't raise your hand, right? Yeah, because there is what we want, how we want people to see us, right? And that's usually when we want to put the, you know, they tell you, put your best foot forward, right? (laughs) 
But the other stuff, we don't want that necessarily seen. Unless God is doing some things inside of us, and all of a sudden we come face to face with that reality. I love God's, uh, Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, and she engages him in a historical and theological conversation. Where you worship. Our, our father said, this is where you should worship. And you say, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. And she's going through all that stuff. And finally, you know, Jesus, he entertains her for a minute. And then he finally says to her, go get your husband. <laughs> See what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, the whole conversation changes. And you know, your conversation with God changes when he points to the issues. Stuff that really needs changing, not the theological conversation, but the stuff that really needs changing, which is deep inside of you. Book of James puts it this way so beautifully in James chapter 4, verse 1. Where does conflict come from? Where does war and fighting come from among you? Don't they come even from inside of you? The conflict that's going inside, you have passions, you have desires, and they're struggling and fighting for supremacy in your life. They're fighting to take control of your mind, your will, and emotions. And those conflicts that are internal spill out into the external world in which you live. So all of the external conflicts that we see around us in human society come from a conflict that's inside of an individual. And personal renewal seeks to enter that conflict, challenge those desires, challenge those passions. And the book of James doesn't call it evil passions or evil desires. It just generalizes passions and desires, which means you could have a good desire and a good intention and misapply it. How many have been there? Yeah, you could have the greatest of intentions, especially if those good intentions are rejected. Then you become angry. And all of a sudden, your demeanor changes, your attitude changes. That's why the scripture says, let not your good be evil spoken of. So renewal begins on a what? Personal level. Gets into your business. Brings truth. And then it moves from the personal level to the relational level. Still somewhat personal, because God is now examining the spaces in your life, the people in the spaces in your life. Because we live life on levels, we arrive in what? Stages. And as we move from one level to another in life, quite often the intimacy of your relationships must change because everyone is not moving with you. And what was a good and acceptable relationship at one level may not be good, may not be acceptable at the next level. And you've got to now reevaluate the spaces that people occupy in your life. And there's two reasons why people are in a space in your life. Purpose and maturity. They better have a purpose being there. And you say, well, this person must not have a purpose in my life because all they do is antagonize me. Maybe you need a gold. 
Maybe you need someone to hold you accountable. So don't just judge that person's occupying your space because you feel good about them there. I look back and see God put people in my space that just ticked me off. And I look back and I saw they had a purpose in my space, especially when I was, you know, working at the bank and, you know, relationships were tense sometimes because of the work and the stuff that goes on within that context. I was in finance and, and God put a person in my life who was a gold. That person, all right, because this person was always, and we're friends to this day, <laughs> that person would point out everybody else's mistakes. It was brilliant. Point out everybody else's mistake, so you're busy fixing yours, and you don't get to see hers. Oh, did I say it was a female? <laughs> As a result of that dynamic, I had to make sure. I started learning documentation. When we, I was talking with a, with a client or a customer or whatever, I would create folders, put dates, times, who I spoke to, what I spoke about, so I can go back and look at it to show, no, this is what was said, this is what. I went on defense just to protect myself in a very tense and hostile environment. Didn't know that it was developing certain necessary skills that to this day I cherish. Because I write everything down. I got to record everything. I want to know the time, who spoke, what was said, all of that. And I can go back to conversations that I had decades ago because I have them recorded. Now it's digital. <laughs> Those days I had a, a, a journal and I would, I would write things down. Yeah. So I didn't know that that person was in the, that space in my life. God put her there, all right, to put me on my toes and to develop certain skills that I would not have developed had she not been there. Because I was a supervisor, she was a supervisor, there were other supervisors, and it was like, okay, we, you have to watch your back. You have to know what you're talking about. Get your act together. Am I preaching to anybody in here today? Yeah. And if it was up to me, I'd have said, you're out of here. But God put that person there. So during re renewal, God has you examine the spaces in your life and who occupies those spaces. There are also people who have been in your life who you have underappreciated. You've not understood or appreciated the value that that person has brought to your life. And God doesn't want you to appreciate them after they're gone. So renewal takes place on a personal level, relational level. It takes place in terms of purpose. A reimagining of purpose, a rediscovery of purpose. Because you've grown, you matured. I mean, in my life right now, this is, this is happening beautifully in my life. I'm reevaluating purpose. That for which you were designed. It takes place on a structural level. 
the systems and structures in your life, how you arrange your life, because however you arrange your life creates a rhythm. That rhythm establishes a pattern. And if the pattern is good and fruitful and productive, then fine, continue to grow and develop it. But if it isn't, you don't try to change the pattern, you go back to the arrangement, how your life is arranged, how you arrange your time, your finance, how you arrange your, 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 your intellectual life, your spiritual life. So structural. And then cultural. God will never do something inside of you without the intent of affecting those around you. How many know he saved you so he can save someone else? So it begins here. And in the Hebrew mind, it was concentric circles moving from the individual to the family out into the community, into the nation, into the rest of the world, and into the cosmos with their cosmogony. So when God is involved in renewal, right, he's, changed, he's working on the person, their relationships, their sense of purpose, structural renewal, cultural renewal. But this is not just for you. This also applies to whole societies and nations. And let's really think big. How about the world? And this is important because God is at work. God is at work. He's not just at work in the church or the believer, but he's at work in the world. And it's interesting because many believers don't really have a complete understanding or a healthy understanding of God's work in the world. So they see this dichotomy. God is at work in me and the devil is at work in the world. No. No. God is at work in you, and he's at work in the world around you. How can you work with him if you don't recognize the fact that he's at work in the world around you? So renewal takes place on what level? Come on. He will restructure your life. For greater productivity. For greater efficiency. And when it's talking about a society or a nation, he'll examine the personal identity of that national entity. Like in America. Who are we? What are we? What identifies us? What is our position in the rest of the world? How many believe God is working with nations? In fact, he's working on some nations. He's dealing with that nation's relationship to other nations. 
He's dealing with that nation's sense of purpose and the role that it plays globally. He's working with that nation structurally, its systems, structures, processes, policies. He's working on that nation's cultural understanding when it comes to culture, its, its traditions, the belief that that nation passes from one generation to another. It's attitude, which is simply its intellectual and emotional disposition. How many know nations have an, an attitude? How many know there's an American attitude? You go around the world. And when you talk and carry yourself in a certain way in another country, they look at you, there goes one of those Americans. No matter how divided we may be here ethnically, when we go overseas, yeah, that's one of those Americans. So it's an examination of, of that society culturally, the beliefs, its traditions, the belief that it passes from one generation to another, its attitudes, its intellectual and emotional dispositions, its customs, what that nation practices. And let me tell you, those practices are simply an expression of those beliefs. Those attitudes, intellectual and emotional dispositions, are simply an expression of those beliefs. An examination not only of the traditions, customs, and practices, but the institutions within that nation, because the institutions are also an expression of those beliefs. So if an institution, all right, is, is segregated... Or racialized, guess what? It's expressing one of the emotional and an intellectual dispositions of that society. It's governmental institutions, it's financial institutions, it's educational institutions, it's institutions of arts and entertainment, because institutions simply embody the culture. And lastly, when we think of culture, we're talking about the language of that society, the language of the culture, the words that it uses, all the words that it changes and no longer allows you to use. Issues of political correctness come into play because of language. So when God is going to renew a society, all right, when God is going to renew a society, he begins holistically taking a look at that society, that nation. How many know that God is in charge of the rise and fall of nations? I wish we had some time to go into the text, but Acts chapter 17, beautifully in verse 24, it says that from one blood, God has all, made all nations of the earth. From one blood, right? And he's determined the rise and fall and the boundaries of their influence, not just geographic influence, but their social and cultural and political influence. Too often, Christians, as Christians, we think in a box. Our little world, just me and Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, you're a part of something much greater than yourself. How many believe that? 
Let's go to John chapter 5, verse 16. John 5, 16. How many know that Jesus used to go around starting trouble? Did you read the book? If you read the Gospels, you know Jesus would start stuff. And you know how it is. If you don't start stuff, there won't be stuff. So in this situation, Jesus decides, knowing that this is going to really, really agitate the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the legalists. He knows it's going to agitate them. So what does he do? He decides he's going to heal someone on a Sabbath day. <laughs> he knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't an accident. He didn't say, oops, I forgot. It was a Sabbath day. In fact, he had to tell them that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. Because they misunderstood. There was such a legalistic application of the word. There was no spiritual understanding of it. And the letter kills, but it's the spirit that gives life. It's the spirit of the law that gives life. It's the spirit of the law that interprets the intention of the law. So these were legalists, and they're upset with him. Verse 16. All right, let's, let's back up. We'll go to verse 15. The man that Jesus healed, <laughs> Jesus healed him, and, and he did it, he did it in, a, in a spectacular way. He says, your sins are forgiven you. What? Only God can forgive sins. What are you doing forgiving sins? Jesus said, which is easier for me to say? Be healed or your sins are forgiven you. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power, the authority to forgive sins. I said it like that. I told you, he starts trouble. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. How dare you heal a person of cancer on the Sabbath? How dare you do that? I hope you get the irony of that. <laughs> you, if you can heal someone of, cancer, someone of cancer, it doesn't matter what day it is. How many will reject it if someone heals you on the Sabbath? No, no, can't do that. You'll take it as you can get it. Amen? And that was a point. That's a point. People need healing. Verse 16, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. I want you to look at his answer. But Jesus answered them, my father is what? I can't hear you. Come on. This is important. I want you to get this. My father is what? Working. Do you know that there are people who think that God has been on vacation since he sanctified the Sabbath day? They read Genesis, and it says, and God rested from all his labor. And they've concluded he's been resting ever since then, and he's left it up to us. God forbid! Look at what he says so beautifully, reading from the English Standard Version. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, which means he never stopped. He never stopped. Listen, 
it only takes us three chapters to mess it all up. Chapter one, he created it, put it in an order. Chapter two, he brought the woman into play. Chapter three, all went downhill. <laughs> How many got that far in Genesis in your Bible reading? You got to chapter three. Very good. Keep, keep at it. <laughs> My father is working until now, and come on, what else? Come on, and I am working. God is at work. God is at work. Come on. Come on. See, just when you think God's taking the day off, and you come to that conclusion because you don't discern, recognize, identify his work in your life. But just because you don't see it or see him doesn't mean he's not there at work. The scripture says when he sent the disciples out, he went with them, confirming the word with signs following. He went to work with them. Turn your neighbor and say, neighbor, God is working with me. And on me. How many know it takes both? Number one, he's at work creatively. God is still creating. God is still creating. Remember, he determines the rise and fall of nations. And he's intricately involved with that, even though, even if one of those nations or those nations are corrupt or anti-God. And especially since the resurrection of Jesus and him sitting at the right hand of the Father, giving all authority in heaven and on earth, God is creatively involved. He's creating societies. He's creating organizations. He's releasing information into human mind and human understanding towards his redemptive acts and his creative work. He's, cre he's planting churches. He's creating parachurch organizations, ministry organizations, philanthropic organizations. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, he said, what's going to mark it? You're, you're, you're going to have what? Visions and dreams. Visions and dreams create. Things are born because someone has a dream. Things are born because someone has a vision. God is at work. He's creating. He's creating societies. He's creating organizations in response to the issues that are going on within that society. How many know God created something called Christian Cultural Center? Planted it right here. He didn't talk to me about it. <laughs> he just said, this is what I want you to do. And then you do it and trust God with the outcome. How many believe that God is at work creatively? And some of us keep God on the top of his creativity. Because of stuff that we give him. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the scripture says God will make a way where there 
is no way. So if, there, if, if there's no way in existence, it has to be created. And some of the stuff that we come up with really challenges his creativity, if God could be challenged. But how many know he is creating a way for, for you right now for things that you haven't even encountered yet? Are you hearing me? I want to expand your vision of God. You know, we can have this, this, this idea of God that things happen and he shows up. No, he's already been prepared for that. He's already set things up in motion. In anticipation. Say this with me. God is at work creatively in me. How many of you believe that? How many of you believe that? then you've got to act like that. You've got to think like that. You've got to walk like that. You've got to talk like that. The scripture says that you are his poem. Come on, come on. Believe the book. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For good works that God has before ordained for us to walk in. You don't show up, God looks at you and decides, hmm, what can I do with that one? God is a planner, God is an anticipator, and He's anticipated. Every outcome of every situation, every choice, every decision that you could ever make and never get a chance to make. Boy, I wish I could say that again. Are you hearing me, folks? This is a God that we're dealing with. He is all-knowing. God just doesn't know a few things. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present. He's Alpha and Omega. And even in his movement and work in time, he's not moving through time as though it's a progression of succession for him. No, the beginning and the end, everything is happening at one time to him. And a long period of time for you can be a second to him. And that's why you, you, you notice that whenever someone has a vision or a dream or a situation that seems like it's so comprehensive and long, and you wake up and it's only been a few minutes. How many have been there? That's real, folks. That's real. So God is at work creatively. He's at work providentially. Which means he's at work what? Guiding. Providing and sustaining human life, especially yours. Let me see how much you learn. Does God have favorites? Yes. Some of y'all are getting it. Does God have favorites? Yes. But it says that God is not with partiality. He has favorites, but never at the expense of someone else. Are there any of God's favorites in here? Yes. 
Well, you know, I don't really want to say that. Okay. I'm one of God's favorites. I'm one of God's favorites. And not because of anything I did. It's because of my faith in the work of Christ Jesus. I am in Christ. So when God look at me, looks at me, he looks at me where? In Christ. He doesn't see me standing on my own. Oh, I hope you're getting this. He doesn't see me standing on my own. Not my own righteousness. Not my own anything. He sees me where? In Christ. Come on, where does he see you? Where's he looking at you? Do you know you can be in Christ and mess up and do wrong? It's be too often we think we step in and out of Christ. If I'm sinning, I stepped out. God forbid. You tell me where you can flee from his presence. Our relationship intact, but our fellowship, that can be challenged. It's like a marriage. As Karen and I don't wake up in the morning, wonder if we're still married because of, you know, maybe a conflict we had the day before. We's married. <laughs> now deal with it. <laughs> so God is at work providentially to guide, guard, and govern human society. Number three, he's at work judicially. Judging human actions through the use of conscience. Judging whole societies and their actions. Judging communities and their actions. Judging organizations and their actions. He's at work judicially. I could spend a lot of time, I want to keep moving. And he's also at work redemptively. He's redeeming, restoring the connection, drawing people unto himself, reconciling people unto himself, reconciling people back to the original intent that he had for them in the image of God before the fall, Re restoring people to, to human flourishing within the confines of this particular period. So God is what? Come on, God is what? He's at work, he's at work, he's at work, and he's at work. All of this inside of me and all of this in the world around me. God is at work. Okay, so Daniel has a, his call upon to interpret a dream. Oh, man. Congressman, if you have to leave, you're going to another church, we understand. It's okay. He looks like he's glued to his seat. Okay. So, God, listen, listen. Let me just set this up, and then we'll unpack it next week. 
God allows Israel to go into captivity in order to speak to them eschatologically. I'm going to try that one more time. Eschatology has to do with things to come, the future. Got it? But he couldn't have that conversation with them while they were an established kingdom. Because they thought they were all that. And you can't talk to people sometimes when, you, when they think they're... See, when they get into a situation that's adverse and they're challenged and they're struggling and they're in a crisis situation and they're the minority, not the majority, hello! Some, for some reason, people hear better. So he allows a chosen people to enter captivity in Babylon. And what does he say to them in captivity? He says, listen, I want you to settle down, build houses, plant gardens, marry your children, pray for the peace and prosperity of the very city that you've been taken captive to. I don't want you sitting around whining, crying, complaining. Or calling upon me to deliver you. Because this is going to take 70 years. He told them they'll be in captivity for 70 years. They can pray all they want. And there, there are situations where you want to pray yourself out of something. But God has determined a specific period of time for you to be in that context. In order to do what he needs to do in your life. Prophet Jeremiah wrote it down. Daniel read it. 70 years. And it's in captivity that he was able to speak with them apocalyptically and give them a bigger vision than themselves. Because of their national identity, it was about Israel. Now he was going to teach them about the nations of the earth and why Israel was still alive. Because they were carrying a seed. They were pregnant and didn't know it. And he was always protecting that seed that was inside of them. So he has the best and the brightest to be part of that deportation. Meshach, Shadrach, Daniel... Like one of my pastor friends said, and a bad Negro. I'm sorry, Abednego. Sorry. They're in captivity. Their names are changed to fit the culture. They're educated within the cultural context in Babylonian schools, etc., to take on the culture. But they drew the line. Though we're here, we're not going to surrender completely to your culture. We have a relationship with our God, and anything that imposes or trespasses on that relationship, here's where we draw the line. And what happens? God positions, sets it all up, and then he gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And none of his staff 
could interpret the dream. The only one that could interpret it was one of the captives. Oh, man. Come on, folks. Are you hearing me this morning? The only one that could make sense was the captive. And Daniel was called upon to interpret the dream. I love it. It's funny. In fact, in one situation there, the king's magician said, well, tell us the dream. We'll interpret it. He said, no, 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 no. Not only do you have to interpret the dream, you have to tell me what I dreamt. So Daniel interprets the dream. And it's a dream of a statue. But it's a statue of a human being, very regal, right, with headdress and everything, as a king. What does it represent? It's symbolic. It represents human kingdoms, earthly kings and earthly kingdoms. But it's in a statue. And the statue, all right, parts of the statue is represented by certain metals of value. And Daniel interprets the statue. So it's a statue of a man standing, right? And then Daniel gives the interpretation. He says, the head is of gold, which is a very precious, valuable metal, right? And he says, that's you, O king. It represents your kingdom of Babylon. It's gold. And then he works his way down. And this portion here, representing the Medo-Persian Empire, is made of silver. Then he works down to the next, which is the Grecian Empire. Represented by bronze. And then finally, the Roman Empire. Represented by iron. And he says, these are kingdoms that will rise. But please understand that Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom Babylon, is the greatest when it comes to supremacy. So when he speaks of the rise and fall of these empires, he's not talking about the disappearance of these empires. He's talking about their supremacy. So they'll still exist, but they won't have the same level of supremacy as an empire. The same level of power. But notice, things are not getting better in human kingdoms. They're getting what? They're decreasing in value. And the odd thing is, each empire increased in technology, increased in intellect, increased in education, increased in all of those things that are human. But to God, it was decreasing. And finally, it gets to iron, not only iron, but iron and clay. And why? Because these two can't mix. And why is that important? Because the Roman Empire would actually be composed and eventually break up because of conflicting ideologies. 
conflicting ideas and opinions that cause it to break up. And out of the, the, okay, can't get too far. And, and, and Daniel, the reason why Daniel shared this, because these are four, there'll be a first kingdom is Babylon, then a, then a second, a third, and a fourth kingdom, right? And please understand Babylon, because that's where the conflict between God and man starts. It's in what? The Tower of Babel, that man is united against God. So God is now responding to the unity and technology of man. But one thing Daniel beautifully does is pull back the curtain to show that, that be, be, behind each empire are spiritual forces. That are shaping and influencing the ideologies behind these empires. And this is all a setup because after, after the, Daniel interprets the dream and identifies these empires, all right, these are the empires that would precede a fifth empire. The leader of that empire is going to emerge in a way that's totally unexpected. And then Daniel says concerning this fifth empire, it will have no end. And it's going to obliterate all of the other empires. So the four empires that he described were to point to the what? And he said the first four kingdoms were kingdoms of men. But this is the kingdom of God. He says, during the reign of the fourth empire, a new empire is going to be established. The God of heaven will establish an empire. And he would do it during the reign of the fourth empire. Was Jesus born in the Roman Empire? So what God does is set it all up so that he can step into human history, invade human history with something new. So what does Jesus do? He starts his ministry. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of God that Daniel prophesied about was now breaking into human history. And it's going to be done so strategically that it can occupy other nations while other governmental systems and power are at work and not crush it. Absolutely brilliant. So the kingdom of God broke through. And Jesus Christ, and I, I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself here. Paul the Apostle said in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom is what? Righteousness. Peace. And joy. Now we say in the Holy Ghost, it simply means powered and directed by 
the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is powered by and directed by the Holy Spirit. But this kingdom would now break into human history. And what is it going to bring? Can we get a little deep? Just as I wrap this up in the next couple minutes. All right? There were about nine key gods. Babylonian Empire. About 12 in the Medo-Persian. About 20 in the Grecian Empire. And about 218... And you got to understand, all right, up until the age of enlightenment, no national entity identified itself as atheistic. They were all ruled by deities, not necessarily Yahweh, but by deities. Notice the increase of demonic occupation, um, excuse me, deity occupation. <laughs> and when we get to Revelation chapter 18, the apostle John identifies the Roman Empire with Babylon and calls it a cesspool of demonic activity. So God waits until this climate takes place and then he brings his kingdom to invade it. And within 400 years of the coming of Jesus, Christianity becomes the state religion. Over the empire, vacating all those spirits. Do you understand when he said that he conquered all principalities and power, making a show of them openly. He brought it to Rome. And to make a show of them openly means to parade the victory. There was spiritual warfare when Jesus came because he had a den of principalities and powers to work with. This is why Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He was saying it in the first century. But within 400 years, Christianity would displace all those deities and become the state religion of Rome. Are y'all hearing me this morning? He say, well, that's bad. It became the state religion and then... No, no, never mind all that stuff. That doesn't stop God from doing what he's going to do. And all of a sudden, Christianity is now exalted, and there's one, one, one exalted deity, and that's Jesus. Meanwhile, the empire is deteriorating. The empire of Rome is declining. But the empire of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is increasing. And he said it would be like leaven that's put in, hidden into a loaf. And then it will rise, but you can't see it because leaven is invisible. He said, that's how the kingdom would be at work. And what was the kingdom going to bring? Where, where, where is it? Righteousness is holiness. 
and justice. Peace is shalom, which means wholeness to the human person, spirit, soul, and body. It means rightly ordered world, rightly ordered relationship, rightly ordered society, rightly ordered person, and joy. The feelings that are evoked by the presence of righteousness and peace. God's holiness would challenge the individual. God's justice would challenge the society. God's holiness would, would bring a light, a moral and ethical light on the words, thoughts, attitudes, choices, emotions of the person. And his justice would shine a light on the ethical and moral practices of the society. Judging its systems and structures, policies and practices. Judging all of those things. The ultimate objective would be to bring peace and deliverance that will result in joy. Are you hearing me? So he, he, he brings Christianity into Rome and then Rome collapses. But it turns into nations that are Christian. In preparation for something greater that we won't get a chance to go through today. But how many are getting the, that there's a bigger picture here? How many are getting there's a bigger picture here? Absolutely brilliant. Let me tell you, if I was a strategist, that's the kind of strategy I want. A strategy that covers thousands of years in preparation to effect change within society. The kingdom of God, folks. You're a part of the kingdom of God. So here's the question. America. That's the question. And here's the answer. Not this week. Did you get anything out of that today? Come on, give God a good hand and clap off. Let's all stand. And let me tell you something. Even if you deny Jesus, if you deny Christianity, it doesn't matter. Because the principles that it brings are still relevant. That's why Thomas Jefferson wrote his own Bible. It was called the Jefferson Bible. What did he do? He, he eliminated all of the miracles so that way the supernatural is not at play and he left all of the moral principles of Jesus in his Bible. So even though he wanted to deny the supernatural and the power and the resurrection, he could not deny the fact that these are principles that if followed will build a successful, healthy society. And if it can build a healthy society, what can it do for your life?
A society takes a lot more maintenance than you. Those who hear my words, hear these sayings of mine, build upon them. I'll tell you what he's like. It's like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. When the rain came, the storm came, that house stood. What we bring to this world, folks, as salt and light, you've got to have a bigger picture of. The devil would love to leave you in your Jesus in a little box. And that's all it is. I'm not going to let you stay there. The Apostle Paul said, I would not let you be ignorant, brethren, concerning these things. Thank you for your patience, the extra time. I hope it was worth it. And I'm sorry I had to skip over a lot of stuff to get there real quick, but we're going to unpack it, and we're going to look at it in greater detail. Being a Christian is deep and profound. It's not just choosing a religion. You can't choose Christianity. God chose you. You determine whether you're going to accept that choice, respond to that choice or not. And let me tell you, once you sense the offer, you better grab it. Because it's his grace that gets your attention in the first place. Let's bow our heads as we go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time of worship together. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word which you sent to heal us and deliver us from our destruction. Thank you for the model of the old exodus in the Old Testament. But thank you for the new exodus that you bring through Jesus Christ. As we spend this year unpacking renewal, unpacking all that you're at work doing in us personally, in our families, in our churches, in our organizations, in our nation, in our world, we pray that you will pour out your wisdom upon us, your knowledge, your understanding, and deepen our relationship with you and make us even better instruments in your hand. We love you, Lord. We bless you and thank you for the privilege of knowing you and serving you and being a part of this great kingdom, this great movement in the earth called the kingdom of God. And Father, right now as we close, if there's anyone in here and you're not a part of that kingdom. You don't know whether you're a part of that kingdom. You've never made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. You don't get into the kingdom by what you know. You get there by who you know. You've got to know Jesus in the pardon of your sins, in his death and his resurrection for you. And if you're that person, while every head is bowed, every eye closed, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you personally. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says very quickly, very easily, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. Thank you. I see that hand. Father, thank you for this individual. Thank you for the word and the spirit that brought them to the place of surrendering their hearts and mind and will and emotions the authority of Christ. Would you all follow me in this prayer? Say, prayer, say God, I thank you for this opportunity 
to trust my life and my future, my very soul, into the hands of Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead for my justification. And with him, I have eternal life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Teach me your ways. I'm yours. All that I have and all that I am. Pass me from death into life. From darkness into light. And I'll ever give you the glory, the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, give God a good hand, clap offering. Hallelujah. Thank you, family, for being with us today. I hope you were blessed by the praise and worship and the word and the whole experience. And keep your church and its leadership in your prayers. Cannot tell you how important that is. Let's say something good to leave this place, but never God's presence. Jesus is Lord, period. We believe it, we proclaim it, and we're seeing it come to pass. God bless you. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Thanks for tuning in to the A.R. Bernard Podcast. I hope you were enriched by the information and or the conversation. Make sure subscribe by clicking the link in the bio to gain more information about me and the work that I'm doing. Again, thank you and God bless.